For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Hey everyone, on this week's episode, I'm joined by veteran National Hockey League defenseman Avid Hunter and my former Binghamton Senators teammate Eric Griba. Since we played together, he's logged nearly 300 NHL games and now hosts his own TV show called Grilling with Griba that airs on Wild TV in Canada and the Pursuit Channel in the United States. This one's for the Sasky boys and all those relics hanging out in the Boston area and Binghamton, New York. Enjoy! Six foot four, two hundred and twenty-two pounds. Eric Griba, the pride of the prairie. Give me the background on how a guy like you from out west on the prairies ends up at Boston University of all places, becoming the urban cowboy. Yeah, that was quite the story. Um, it just it happened that I was playing midget hockey. I was drafted to the Dub. Um, had a lot. I was I was a stereotypical Western League defenseman, big kind of tough guy. Like, um, but then kind of my last year of midgets, I started getting some like college attention and my parents were like, well, why don't you take a look at this? And, you know, I played my senior year of uh, high school in uh, Green Bay, Wisconsin, and I'm getting a full ride to BU. So I, I knew I was going to go to school eventually. It just, uh, it made sense to kind of kill two birds with one stone. When you're looking at schools, did you have a lot of them coming after you and how'd you ultimately decide that BU is the right fit for you? Um, yeah, I had, almost my pick of the litter actually uh that was yeah i was really lucky um but I, my final three were north dakota michigan and bu and those are the only three that i visited and um uh, for me it was it was boston and the new rink obviously but like i mean growing up in saskatchewan i mean i'm pretty green and to go to boston yeah, right. and like right next to fenway and you know you're right on com ave and right you know close to downtown i mean it just for me, that just my eyes just like lit up, and I was like, "Okay, well, this will be a pretty cool experience because I've never experienced a city like this before." So you're actually excited to just do something different, get out of town, and and go experience the world a little bit. Yeah, because I mean, North Dakota was almost too close to home. You know, it would have been like six, seven hour drive for for everyone to come, which I think my parents would have liked. But uh, and then Michigan was um, obviously a great program. But just seeing the city and what and the amenities that it had and all the different opportunities and like not a lot of people know this, but Boston has like two hundred fifty thousand college students in it during the school year. Yeah, it's a lot. So like it's it's just a it's a massive it's a glorified college town is what it is and slash sports town. So I mean for me it was and you know and they're all Irish they like to drink so that was cool. Yeah. <laughs> 
Your teams at BU are pretty good, though. I mean, maybe you can rattle off some of the names of guys you played with and the accomplishments you had while you were there. Oh, God, yeah. Our, especially my, my junior years when we won the national championship. And that team was – I think I counted 11 or 12 guys played or played in the NHL. So, I mean – I mean, that's I mean, more that, than half I, the roster on a college team. More than half of it. That's an unbelievable yeah. number. Like our at St. Lawrence, we had like one draft pick. <laughs> our, our whole decor played in the NHL. Yeah. It was unbelievable. So, I mean, you guys, our decor, you got like uh, Matt Gilroy, who won the Hobie Baker that year, um, Kevin Shattenkirk, Brian Strait, myself, David Rosofsky, and Colby Cohen. We're all like, all played. Colby, I think, only played a couple of games, but nonetheless, I played some NHL games. So it was, it was wild. And then up front, we had like Colin Wilson, Brandon Yip, Nick Benino. Uh, those are the guys that made it far. I'm trying to think of John McCarthy. He's made a career out of uh, in San Jose there. Um, yeah, it was insane. That's an unbelievable lineup. But how the hell did you end up with 106, 118 penalty minutes in college? Like, come on, man. What were you doing to people out there? I was such a goon. <laughs> it was, I don't know. I mean, it was just – it was. I just always played physical. And um, my coach, always Jackie Parker, wasn't always a huge fan of it. I mean, he loved the physicality, but – it was always kind of uh, grooming me to kind of dial back on the slashing and the hookings and the, and those sort of things. So it, uh, yeah, it was, uh, that was definitely a big part of my career. Um, you know, going into pro was learning, you know, getting away from that, that clutching and grabbing and that hooking and, you know, just playing, the, you know, just getting the physical penalty minutes. I mean, Jack Parker is a legendary character in the game, head coach at BU for all these years. What memories do you have of him as a head coach? Jack was always good. I mean, he, uh, he was definitely old school. Um, I mean, I, I really liked him as a coach. The best one I had, so in Aganis, um, at home there, our penalty box is right, is right next to our bench. So, and, he, and you can walk behind, you know, free and clear in, into each one of them. So I remember this one, one game, uh, this kid was coming up the wall, and I absolutely buried him with an elbow. So he goes like, and this is in the offensive zone. So he goes like kind of limping off the ice and he's kind of hurting. So he goes up to his bench and all of a sudden a guy comes, the guy who replaced him comes off the bench and they fire him up for a breakaway. So I'm already getting a, it's a delayed penalty right now. So I'm like, I have an elbowing penalty coming. So then I'm like, well, shit, they're not going to give me two penalties. So I hook the guy down on a, on a, they gave me a hooking penalty. So I got two penalties in one shift. So I'm sitting in the box, and Jackie, and I didn't see it. All of a sudden, I feel Jack's arm, like, you know, wrench on my jersey from behind. He's like, God, I need his boss. And I said, what the fuck? And he's going off. He's like, you son of a bitch. Like, what are you doing? Like, oh. <laughs> it was pretty funny. So they got you with the Chisler play where one guy goes in one side of the bench and comes out right. the other, and you gain, like, 30 feet of ice. Right, exactly. But then, just because the kid was hurt, he probably had a concussion. He's just trying to get off the ice. Oh. And I said, I just stopped paying attention to him. You must have killed guys in college, though, wearing full cages. And I mean, just with your size and the way you play, such a different game than pro, wasn't it? Yeah, it really was. I mean, um, I've even played with a couple of the guys that I hit in college, like um, Brad Malone. Bugsy's like, you know, that was the hardest hit I ever had when he was playing for Nodak. He came across, I mean, I hit him like hard. Uh, and he's like, yeah, that's the hardest I've ever been hit. I was like, yeah, I believe it. Yeah. Well, we, had, <laughs> so, we would get guys out of the USHL the same way. I mean, guys could skate. You're used to having a cage on. It's just so different. And then after whistles, scrums, they're so funny to watch where guys are they're being tough. They're putting hands at each other's face. But you can't fight. 
Like, what's really no. the point of this stuff, you know? Right. Yeah. Everyone's like super tough when they have cages on. It's Funny hilarious. How that works. Yeah. Well, you had a, you had a huge offensive outbreak your senior year. Ten points, four goals. <laughs> the most goals I've had this season since. Yeah. So that obviously led to you signing an NHL contract, I'm sure, right? What uh, what led to that, though? Because you were a draft pick at Ottawa, went third round in 2006, which was before you even went to school. So were there any discussions about leaving school early, or were you pretty content with staying all four years and then signing afterwards? Um, so I was offered to leave uh, my junior year after we won the national championship. Uh, Ottawa wanted me to leave. But going back the next year, I I wanted to finish my degree, one. Two, we also had the outdoor game in Fenway. That was the frozen Fenway game oh, against man. BC's. Like, oh, I kind of want to like – I knew we weren't going to be as good because we were losing some serious guys. But Yeah, that's one thing in my career I never got to do. I've never had an outdoor game. That's like the one thing that I've always wanted. So you're lucky that you got that. Well, I got that one, and then I got another one in Edmonton when uh, we went to and played Winnipeg. Oh, you doubled up Jets. on it. Wow. Yeah, I got – well, no, I got another one. I played in Ottawa. We played uh, – oh, here's a Heritage Classic. Oh, yeah, so you're, I got three you're a seasoned veteran with this stuff. I got three under my belt, yeah. So coming out of college, though, once you got to pro, uh, you got those few games in Binghamton after your BU career, like after seasons ended senior year. Was it a big step for you, though, to change to go to the American Hockey League as opposed to college? Because I know the game's a little bit different, like we talked about earlier. Was it an easy transition for you? Um, no, it was, it was definitely tough. Uh, I mean, I remember, so I got six games that – um, within Binghamton there right after I left college. And um, I remember there was the last game of the year we played Wilkes and Zach Sill was coming up the wall and with his head down and I absolutely buried him. Well, but not realizing that, you know, who else was out there? Oh, this one Wilkes had two of the like super tough guys. It wasn't England. Anyway, guy came split, like shut my eye. I was like on the ground and like, you know, shut my eye, went back to, so that was the last game. So like three days later, I was back at school. I had black eye clothes, zippers all across of it. Like people were like, what did you do? I'm like, yeah, I mean, pro hockey's a little different. <laughs> when you're walking through the dining hall, was everybody giving you the side eye thinking this guy must've just gotten a fight in Southie or something? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. This guy, this guy went to the wrong side of the tracks. He definitely <laughs> should, shouldn't have been over there. What was it like being at school in Boston, though? I mean, you already mentioned how many college kids were there, but for you, I mean, it had to be a fun experience. So just dive into maybe what a Saturday night was like after you finished your seat, your uh, your set of games for the weekend. Yeah, it was pretty uh, – well, I mean, that was – so that was two different – there's kind of two different timelines. So once you turn 21, then you can actually legally go to the bars and not have fake IDs and, and whatever, and you know you're going to get into the bar. So like pre-21, it was like – Basically, called call the, the lacrosse girls because they were the, honestly they were the fun. I still see we still see them at weddings and we all go to this. You know, we all we're all friends, and they are just the funnest group of girls I've ever been a part of. They drink they drink us under the table. All the all the hockey players we leave and with our tails between our legs and the cross girls will still be going. Um, but yeah, we usually like call them up, see what they're doing, maybe find a house party, um, and then I guess you know post. Well, post turning twenty one or post legal age, uh, yeah, we stick around Com Ave. Usually do uh, use Tees Pub. Usually a pretty good spot, and we all got treated well there. And it's close to the rink, so it's uh, yeah, that's pretty much I guess the the gist of our post game uh, collegiate experience. What did you know about Binghamton, New York, before you went there? Nothing. Well, 
I'd ask guys at, at development camps. I was like, hey, like, what's this Bingham? Because I knew, like, I wasn't going right to the NHL. Like, I was like, well, what's this Binghamton like? And they're like, uh, you'd hear like mixed reviews. I found like, you know, the the prima donnas were like, this is the worst place in the world. It's terrible. And then you have like the other guys, like it's actually like not that bad. Like there's enough to do and you can have fun there. And so it was, I didn't really know. Um, but as you know, I mean, I, I love Binghamton, especially like well, my first time around. It was unbelievable. Yeah, it was it a really was, good I, fit for you, right? I mean, I, I'm looking when I showed up in, at the in the city and we played together in twelve thirteen or eleven twelve, I guess it was. I'm like, this guy runs the town here. He's got all the connections around. He's he's out there hunting before practice. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was yeah for me. It was great because there was like tons of like outdoor activities, so I could hunt and I could fish. Um, and you know, whenever I had time off, um, there was a really good bar scene. There's colleges there, so there was lot. You know, I was single, so there was lots of girls. It was perfect. Um, and it was, you know, it was easy to get around. It was a small town. So it was, for me, it was perfect. Um, you know, it's obviously not a big city that has, you know, all the awesome amenities and all the things you do, but I always told myself, if I can have fun in Binghamton and embrace this, I can live anywhere in the world. I always thought it was way underrated city, honestly. And I was talking to Jeff Glass previously on a podcast about this, that I think people get the wrong impression when you drive into town, because when you're the visiting team, you just see that kind of like bombed out looking area by the river. It's not word, pretty, right? It's, it's been it's been flooded. It's probably been flooded ten times in the last six years, you know. So it looks awful. But once you get there and live there, it's actually really fun. And in the last couple of years, I know they've built housing downtown that's right by the rink that guys are living in, and the college mm-hmm. keeps the city afloat. So, you know, once you got there, how did you make inroads? Because we haven't talked about your hunting and your other passions in life yet. But that's something obviously really important to you. So, how did you make inroads into the hunting and fishing community once you got there? Um, well, actually the trainer, the head trainer for equipment trainer for Ottawa at the time was from Binghamton and he was a big hunter. And so then he basically just hooked me up with all his buddies. So he gave me their contacts and I just started hanging out with all his, his local buddies there and we just all go hunt. So, you know, we did everything, deer hunting to rabbit, um, fishing, just kind of did whatever they were doing. I'd just tag along and do that. Was it actually true that you did go hunting before practice? Yeah, I remember Kirk Kleinerus called me and uh, me and Bo- well, he called me in, and then he called Boro in. I remember me and Borowiecki said we weren't allowed to hunt during playoffs. <laughs> why not? It works during the regular season. Why can't yeah, you do it in playoffs? Well, uh, why, why not? I'll just hunt in the evening. I don't care. <laughs> did so, you bag? Yeah, no. Did you bag anything yeah. good while you were there? I mean, there's pretty good deer uh, around that area, right? I shot a couple deer. Um, I think actually, my last year there. I shot a really nice buck um, with a local guy that I met. Uh, wasn't part of the same group. He was uh, different. It kind of it was my last year there. We lived out on me and three, four other guys rented an acreage. It was like a, we called it the ranch. We had like five acres of land. This massive house um, up by like Conklin. So it was like we were about fifteen minutes from the rink. But it was great. We had a hot tub and you know <laughs> all this privacy, and it was great. So well, yeah, and that neighbor was down the street, and I just met him. Um, he has a bunch of land right there, and he's like, "Yeah, come on, come hunt whenever you want." So I ended up shooting a nice deer off his property there. Is that about the time frame when you started to get into cooking, though? Because I mean, you've you'd obviously had hunted for a long time, but and now it's taken on this life of its own, where you're you're doing TV shows and grilling with Griba. But when did your your passion for cooking and wild game really start? Um, yeah, I I think that's probably you're probably right. That's probably about the time. I started to cook a lot more. Um, definitely in college, I didn't really do any cooking because we had dining halls. Yeah, it's laid out for I, you. Yeah, I mean, this is too easy. Um, so once I once I turned pro, 
uh, I obviously had to start. I, mean, I always liked cooking, but once I turned pro, then it's like, okay, well, I need to start getting a little bit more creative with my recipes and, you know, because I do like really good food. So it, uh, and then by probably my third year pro, second or third year pro, that's when I like really started to take off. I'm like, yeah, I really like cooking and I really like shooting things and cooking them. So I remember you took me to a, a I guess you could call it a wild game meal at the end of the year with your hunting yeah. buddies. And man, I got to tell yeah. you, that was one of the coolest experiences because I got to try so many different types of meats. And a lot of things that you hear about not being good, like bear, moose, these things that people always say they're tough, they're no good. Well, I think if you treat any protein the right way, you can make it taste really good. You know, do you find that true? I mean, I see you cooking all kinds uh, of wild game and it always looks delicious. And I'm like, I'm always really honest because if it, if it tastes like garbage, I'm going to tell you that I screwed it up or it doesn't taste good. Um, so if it looks good, that probably means it tastes good too. Um, but yeah, that's the big thing. People, there's such a misconception. People are like, oh, wild game is, you know, it's, yeah, it's chewy and doesn't taste good. And, you know, I don't like to flip the taste. I'm like, well, you're, whoever cooked it for you cooked it wrong. Right. Because you, you can have gourmet five-star dishes made out of wild game. You just have to you just have to treat them right. So like, do you do you sous vide at all? I haven't sous vide. That's on my list of things I need to get better at, or at least try because I haven't. Dude, you need to get one. They are game changing. I, I saw you just like, did a duck did. breast that looked amazing. Uh, yeah, it was snow goose actually, it was snow goose breast, and I just put them in there for like four hours in a spicy marinade, and at like one forty five, took them out, flash like grilled them got a little char on them and cut them thin, like unbelievable. And that's, I won't, I won't do a prime rib anymore without like on the barbecue. It is straight sous vide. Do you know like that, that, that pink middle part? That's always like the best. Like, yeah, that's like the yeah. good, it's, it's that throughout the whole thing. There's no overdone part. There's no rare part. It is just like that perfect pink from crust to crust. Like it's unbelievable. It's probably pretty nice too that you can set the sous vide to go do its thing and you can get your workout done or do whatever else you want while that's going. Do whatever you got to do. It's yeah. Un- yeah, it's great. You can, you can keep it in, depending on what it is. Like you can keep it in there for eight hours. That's why the so, crock pot to me is so favorable, to, especially in oh, season. I always do at least one crock pot a week because the yeah. slow cooker, man, I'll make it in the morning. And I come home from, from practice or wherever else, five o'clock, it's ready to rock toss a little salt right. on it, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, Easy use. Well, let's go back to the season we had together in 11-12 because it was not the greatest on the ice. We finished last in the league after you'd, won a, last. Cal- yep. yeah, after you'd won a Calder Cup the previous season, <laughs> which, yeah, I, I mean, you go from high to low like that. First, what was it like when you won the Calder Cup, though? I mean, this was your really your first year of pro hockey to come in, win a Calder. What was that run like for your team? Um, it was really cool. I mean, on a personal level, like it was my first year. So like the first, I'd say half the season, I was like in and out of the lineup, you know, being just a rookie. Um, so I really had to, like, I really worked to like become a regular in the lineup. And then second half of the season, I was pretty much a regular in the lineup and playing pretty well. And then, um, I got a high ankle sprain, like, oh, call it like a month left in the season. I got a high ankle sprain, so I was out for like eight weeks. So I didn't make it back until second round of the playoffs. And, uh, no, third round. We played Charlotte, so I played the third and the final round. And uh, but yeah, for me, I mean, it was so cool to to go to see Binghamton. Like throughout like throughout the season, there really wasn't much of a crowd. Well, you know, like it's 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 really hit or miss depending on the night or whatever. <laughs> 
Yeah, you know what you're going to get. I mean, you're probably yeah. 3,035, but it's a pretty consistent – it fills up the building, but it's not massive, right? Right, yeah, yeah. But playoffs was insane. Yeah. Like that, they're like the, the roof was about to pop off every single home game. It was unbelievable. So that was that was really cool to see the city really like come alive around around the team like that. And it's funny because so last year I spent some time I spent time in Binghamton, and the amount of the boosters and the people that are coming up to me are like, "You remember the Calder Cup? Like, can we win another one?" I'm like, yeah, we're trying, but we're yeah. brutal. I'm <laughs> <laughs> terrible, so it's probably not going to happen. But uh, yeah, it was uh, that was a cool experience. Um, good group of guys. It was uh, yeah, that was fun. Really enjoyed that. That's one of the coolest parts of playing in a minor league city, though, is going on a deep Calder run like that or a deep playoff run. I had that in Syracuse where it was the exact same thing. The whole city rallied around it. And you'd walk yeah. everywhere around town. There's signs all over the place. There's actually media hits coming in. It's just a fun experience. I mean, it, we didn't win it like you guys, but I remember seeing pictures of the parade when I came. And maybe you could give us a little bit of an idea what happened for Casper's Dogovins, what he looked like and how he celebrated the Calder Cup. He didn't – He, I don't know how to explain it. He looked like he'd been on, what, a two-month bender? He accomplished <laughs> it in like three days. <laughs> he looked like it. That's pretty much what he did. Uh, yeah, he, had, he embraced that. He embraced the win. Remember the mustache he had? Oh, I know. And like he just looked like – yeah, he'd been on you know, like a Mexican two-month bender. He looked yeah, like he could have been in one of those one of those Mexican bands where they're all wearing the sombrero, you know, and, yeah, and strumming along. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, straight from Latvia, right? Oh, was, oh God, yeah, that was <laughs> that was funny, dog man. How about uh, how about Barry Brust? Because he used to have T-shirts there in Brust We Trust with his face plastered on like hundred dollar bills, you know. Like, how was Barry to play with? Because he's one of the ultimate characters in the game. Yeah, he was fun. He was definitely so. He was def. I want to say he's probably four or five years older than I was at the time. Um, I think he's like about he the got, same age as I am. So yeah, probably thirty five, thirty six now. So yeah, probably. Yeah. So he was like, he got the pro lifestyle. He got the pro game. He got the you know he was he got he got it. And I was like just a young top coming in, like trying to figure out you know figure my way through the whole the whole maze of pro hockey. Um, but yeah, he was such a character. You know, great guy in the locker room. Always kept it light. Um, you know, so nonchalant. Oh yeah, like like on and off the ice, but like he just—I mean, something as you know, some of those those goalies, those are the best ones because they just—they don't give a shit. And well, that's, like, that's just, your best man. I know it's crazy. I always get bugged out when people talk about goalies and how high strung they are, and the guys that won't talk to their teammates and they're totally on an island. Because to me, those are the guys that mentally burn themselves out really quick. Like it's so much oh. easier to play when you just are free and you're not worried about things, man. And like you'd right. watch Barry Bruss play, and he'd be making breakout passes with his block. I know. Like they, I know. He'd, he'd get I a floater from the blue like, line, yeah. and he would he'd punch that thing clear to a guy on the wing, and they'd take off. Yeah. And he was he was an unreal puck handler though, which I'm sure you appreciated. Um, really good. Yeah, but what was odd about that year, though, is that was Leonard's first year pro, and that he yeah. ended up taking over in playoffs. And maybe you could just give us a little bit of insight to him, what his run was like, because he was supposed to be absolutely unbeatable, I guess, on the way to the Calder. Yeah, Lenny was like next level. He uh, he was just in one of those zones. So like, I played. Well, I played. We came in pro at the exact same time. So like, literally that those six games that I came in, that's when he came in too. We both came. We shared a hotel room. And uh, so I, and then I played with him in Binghamton and then up in Ottawa for a few years. 
And he was like, I've seen him. I've, I know the zones that he can get into. Like, it's insane. And he was right. in one of those for the Calder run. Like, he was so unbeatable. And he's so big and athletic. And But he was just mentally in the zone. It was, like, so cool to watch. Like, he just, he just didn't beat him. He was like this wall of this Swedish wall. It was crazy. It was always funny talking to Rick Wamsley, the goalie coach. About Lenny, he he pull Lenny over to the side and be like, "Jesus Christ, Lenny, you're as big as goddamn house. Just get out there and make the yeah. save. It's all you got to do." And I, yeah. I think I think Lenny was always looking for a little bit more. Uh, but yeah. Bombers, Bombers, his idea was just straight up, "Jesus, you're just goddamn huge. Just stop it." <laughs> yeah. Oh, I I miss I miss Wammer. He was so funny. I remember that we had a, we had a practice one. He was always so gruff and so to the point, right? And so we had this one practice and. Andre Denis, or oh, sorry, Andre Benoit was right in front of me. And he was, I think he was a captain at that time. Anyway, so Wammer was running some goalie drill or something. We're coming in, you know, shooting, and he's giving guys a hard time. And I, I go to Andre and I'm like, who does this asshole think he is? What a, you know, whatever. And I'm kind of, you know, mother effing him. And he's like, yeah, that's my father-in-law. Right. Like, oh, oh, good to know. I didn't know that. That's cool. <laughs> my favorite Wommer story is we're sitting in the room and, and Kurt Kleinendorst looks over at Wommer and he's like, you know, you guys, uh, when you were in Columbus, you guys went through some tough times, you know, but what did you guys do when you did this and this? And Wommer looks right at him, doesn't even answer the question. And this is in front of the whole locker room. And he goes, oh, we had our own fucking problems when we were in Columbus. <laughs> <laughs> He is. He's so direct, man. It's so funny. Yeah. So that that next year, though, yeah, we went straight to the basement because I remember signing yeah. with, with Ottawa, and I'm thinking, all right, I'm going to a pretty good team here. I had just finished last in the league with Albany the year before. I'm like, well, that's not going to happen again. These guys just won the Calder. Well, they ended up graduating half the team, and the other guys all signed right. big contracts everywhere else. Somewhere else, yeah, because right. we lost. Was was Locker with us, or was he just we had there? Corey Locker that year. That was yeah, the okay, that's what we, that, yeah, we saw. Yeah, okay, that's right. We had Locker, but yeah, we lost a lot of guys. Yeah, like a lot. Well, we lost Kells. Keller wasn't there. Yeah, um, Cody Bass. Yeah, left. And then Basser was gone. Um, but yeah, then a lot of guys were up, right? Like right. Uh, I think Bobby Butler was up. Butsy was up. Uh, I know Condry. Smitty was up for sure. Um, yeah, so yeah, we lost a big chunk of that that team. Yeah. What's what's interesting though about that season though is that I look back at it and even though we finished last, it was still fun. You know, the oh, year yeah. before when I was in Albany, it was a miserable year. The team didn't get along. We were fighting against really just the devil's way, quite honestly. Guys weren't really happy yeah. with it. And I felt like we all bonded and had a good time there, even though we, we and I think part of it too is because we weren't really getting blown out of games. You know, like we were losing right. games three two, two one. We were at least in them. So right. We had some characters though. Like, think about Tim Conboy, Frankie Lassard. Oh, oh, and we had Perry. Oh my God, Mark Parrish is still one of my favorite people ever. Ever, so awesome. Um, Yeah, well, Timmy Conboy, him riding his stick off the ice, giving the finger to everyone in the (laughs) boat. I remember him. He got kicked out of a game in Binghamton. And he comes off the ice, and his his wires had crossed, which right is never good with him. And he comes off and, and. you know, and bingo, and you're backing up, you sit in the runway. Yeah. And as he's walking by me, he goes, I swear to God, before my career's over, I'm going to fight a fucking fan. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that doesn't surprise me. He recently retired, so I don't think he did that. Uh, right. <laughs> but, but think back, I think back, though, like, 
can you think anything funny with Frankie Lassard? Because I'm thinking of the first time I met him and he's in the weight room and he's got a plate on each side of the barbell. And I think he's just going to warm up on bench press. And he starts doing tricep pushes with this thing. Yeah, he's a monster. He was the biggest Frenchman I've ever seen. Like, well, <laughs> uh, how do you, I mean, I don't know how to explain Frankie. Like, you look at his hands. His hands look like mallets. And the mallets <laughs> had been hitting, like wood mallets had been hitting metal things for a long time. They were just beat up. And his face, like, obviously he's a serious fighter. Like, he took a lot of punches. Oh, God. And he just, remember the size of his, like, his arms and his upper massive. body was, like, just a, uh, just a massive, massive human. With how small he drove of a t-shirt he wore. Oh, yeah. He'd wear, like, baby gap t-shirts with, With like, the V-neck yeah. down to his belly button. Yeah, I know. <laughs> so big. Driving that Hummer. Remember he oh, had a Hummer? <laughs> I, remember, I remember when he blew out a tire on the way to the rink. He didn't know what to do. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. He had that Hummer. And then remember how much... Uh, I've never, I still to this day have never seen someone put as much hockey tape around their ankles and their shin, the bottom of their ankles and shin pads. As for, I think roll. it was like, it was like a full roll per side. It was unbelievable. He's one of those but, guys that really made me nervous though, because he loved to fight. And those guys well, always made me nervous. Like you fought a lot. Do you love to fight? No, I do not. I never liked fighting. It was right. part of my job description. So I, I did it. Um, he just like enjoyed fighting do you remember him fighting joel recklish oh and gillies i think he fought both of those guys in bridgeport the one night well he no that's when um no when wrecker was in uh he in oh, hershey? hersh yeah when he was in hershey i've never heard and so like frankie got definitely got the better of uh of wrecker and i've never heard of, like a, a smack like that and like <laughs> Record nose was so broken. The doctor came back to our locker room. He's like, "I've never seen a nose that broken in my life." Oh. He was just that big. Right? Frankie's that big lefty, right? Mm. He threw those massive lefty bombs. Just like, oh, his herd. Oh, just it was eerie. I remember him and Gillies getting into it one night in Bridgeport, and they fought once. And Frankie cut Gillies open pretty good, and he was just Gillies was bleeding down yeah. the face. I remember that there was like a bloody handprint on the glass from Gillies, and it was a huge mess. And they get off the ice. And they come back for the next period, and Gillies has a Band-Aid over the cut. Gillies tells him, we're going again. So they go yeah. again. Frankie punches his his helmet off, opens him right back up, blood all over the ice yet again. It's like, what are we doing? It's 2012, and these these relics are just crushing each other out there. Well, so that fight, I remember that. So I remember the first Gillies fight with, with Frankie. So when he put the glut, so he was like going off the ice there in that in that corner where, you, where they go up, and there's like this little girl like, like cheering there on the glass and he does like his hand is full of blood he just like puts his hand on the like on her like you know right in front of her face it's like oh where am i it's like what is happening right it's now a it parallel was... universe because that was right yeah. to my right it was in the second period or yeah the third, or I third, first or third whatever it was it was the same end that i was at it was disturbing I think, yeah it was like i watched him like i like want to throw up i'm like Ugh, what is going on here oh um, so, oh, you would were you in there? Do you remember Syracuse when Frankie fought Morasti? So Frankie had like a broken hand, so they already went once, and then Morasti kept like wanting to fight Frankie. Frankie's like, no, 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 like my hand's like broken or whatever, and uh, yeah. So then Frankie like kind of upends him, uh, Morasti in the in the neutral zone, and then Morasti loses. So they both drop their gloves. They end up not so they end up squaring off for about a minute and thirty seconds without fighting. Yeah, the refs are pushing dancing. the neck off. 
and and Morassi's taking off his elbow pads and whipping them right <laughs> off of Frankie's head. They're like going going off his head. I'm like, what? And that was that was pretty early in the season too. And I'm like, again, I'm like, where am I? Like, this is pro hockey. Like, this is not what I was expecting. No, this and is then, the Iron in, League, right? And in Syracuse, that's when and that's when Morassi's you know, in the in his glory there. I mean, they put on his fight song. Whenever like the like, ding ding ding, it's like Morassi fighting. He had like like Morassi pictures for every fight he had. They had his like face up on the wall, like up on the up, you know upper mezzanine or whatever. It was I hear wild. He, I hear he's running at Tim Hortons out in Western Canada. That's what Morassi heard, ended up I, doing. I heard I heard yeah. that, and I guarantee he's making a mint for sure. Yeah, what's I funny? It's, I think it's I think it's in northern Saskatchewan, actually, somewhere like up here, like I think it might be Meadow Lake, actually, because that's where he's from. Yeah, it, it was. It's way up there. But I remember hearing a story about Frankie a couple of years after I played with you. Dylan Reese told this one that Frankie used to go down the roster back in the day and go, any taker tonight? I didn't think so. <laughs> Before every game, you look at the game notes, just trying to find a guy to fight for every single game. Well, enough enough Iron League talk because you finally yeah. got out of there and, and made your way to the NHL because the next season, 12-13, you really split between the two. So I don't know the full story. Did you go up and down that year or did you just get halfway through and, and make the NHL team? That was the lockout year. So the, oh, the, year, that's right. the season didn't start until after Christmas. That's right. I was in Peoria so, that year. Yeah. Yeah. So what happened was, so I was in the American League for the first half of the year, obviously, because everyone was. Right. And then, you know, the lockout ended. They, I didn't even, they didn't even call me up for training camp. I was playing really well, but like they didn't even call me to training camp. And then I think nine games into their season, Carlson went down with that uh, cut Achilles. Yeah. And then I got called up and it just never went down. Well, they needed Especially a puck-moving defenseman to come up and make up for him, right? Right. Yeah, yeah. They needed an Eric Carlson-type player. And they're like, oh, his name's Eric. He's probably close. So. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what a change of pace, though, coming from Binghamton and getting to Ottawa. How was your first couple of weeks in the National once you got there? Was it, again, another big transition, or did you feel pretty comfortable once you got there? Um... The game is, well, as, as you know, it's the game's different up there. Like it's it's faster, but not because guys are that much faster. The puck just moves faster, and pucks are flat, and like no one's bobbling pucks, and like everyone's in position. It's like cleaner. It's, That's always how yes. I kind of describe yeah, it to people. Yeah, yeah, and the hockey uh, sense level goes up too. It just the level yeah, oh, of execution. Yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly. So that I found that was it. Took me a while to kind of not a while. Well, I'd say it took me. Yeah, a couple of weeks to really like settle in and like not be overthinking things. Like I was playing well and I was I was keeping it really simple, but it was I was like really nervous and obviously um, you know trying to figure that game out and trying to you know keep up with that hockey IQ like you say with with all those guys. Um, oh, here's a funny story. So we had McLean was our coach that year, the Walrus. Yes, that's right. And uh, anyway, so I was. 13 games in, and I think I was dash four. And I think the last, the previous two games were like that. So, um, yeah, the previous two games, I kind of done a couple things, or maybe like they're not in my wheelhouse. Like, you know, I was getting outside the box a little bit. And so McLean calls me in. He's, so I sit down in his office. He says, Scribes. He says, uh, How you been playing lately? I'm like, ah, I've been doing all right. I, mean, I should probably dial it back in a couple things. He's like, Yeah. He says, I think so. He says, uh, You know what? You've played 13 games, not 1,300, 
So start fucking acting like it. Get out. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, oh, yeah. <laughs> see, <ya." laughs> very direct and to the point. Oh yeah, he was he was good. I liked him. Yeah, but I mean, you got your first taste of playoffs though, too. What was it like to get into a Stanley Cup playoff game? Not just one. I mean, you played a couple of them, and that's when that team was still getting pretty good fans too. Twelve, thirteen, they're packing the place for playoffs. What was that experience yeah. like? That was really cool. Um, for for me, that was. Well, that was a, that playoffs was a kind of a turning, not a turning point, but a, a definitely key point in my career because I had that hit in playoffs where I hit Eller, and right. it was a big controversial hit. You know, I ended up getting suspended for it. No one thought I should have been suspended, and, and just because you know, I ended up in blood on the ice. So it was a whole thing, but it put my name on the map. Right. All of a sudden, like people are like, "Oh, who's this kid?" Like no one really knew me before, and then they're like, "Oh, then." So that, like, as much as it sucked that someone had to get someone got hurt out of the out of the ordeal, it also like really helped my career for sure i mean i can't i can't it's kind of your it's kind of your classic there's no such thing as bad press is really right, exactly. you know, your your yeah. name's in the conversation right now everybody knows who right. you are yeah yeah so no it was cool but yeah the fans in ottawa they were unbelievable the uh the city was going nuts uh so we won the first round uh they got knocked out against pittsburgh in round two so that was uh but yeah it was cool man making it to the second round that was that was pretty wild especially my you know my first year Right. Yeah. It's a good experience. I mean, you got a couple more years in Ottawa and it's funny how that team really has waffled back and forth. Playoffs, out of playoffs, playoffs, ah. out of playoffs. And it's just been this super Jekyll and Hyde thing. And then you get to 15, 16 and you're, did you trade? You were traded to Edmonton, got, right? Yeah. Then I got traded to Edmonton and then yeah, then we we're in Edmonton. That wasn't, that wasn't very much fun. The first, well, when did we make the playoffs? So my, my second year there. Yeah. So my first year was like, it was painful. We were still in Rexall, um, great old building. Just, we had a, a, a we had a bad team yeah. and we weren't doing well. And, the, but then my second year, well, we, we made playoffs and like the place just went insane. Well, and well, and we were in the new rink. We were in, uh, we were downtown then. So we were in the new rink yeah. and made playoffs. Like the place, like it was electric, absolutely electric. You know how that was, I loved Ottawa. But the amount of electricity coming from the city was a lot more in Edmonton than it was Ottawa. What was it like with Connor McDavid? I mean, obviously we've seen him all play in games, but I'm I'm more curious what he's like in practice. What's Connor McDavid like day in day out on the ice? Um, he's got a cheat code. I don't know what else to say. Like it's, <laughs> it's he's got he's, a game I, genie stuck right to the top of his helmet. Remember those old things from the, like, yeah, the yeah, game yeah, boys? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, how do I explain Connor in practice? I mean, he's just better than everybody else by like strides. Um, but he's also a really nice guy. So he slows down in practice. So he doesn't embarrass you too much. Actually, like that, that actually happens in practice where he like, he slows his pace down for the drill sake or for whatever, you know, for doing line rushes or doing PK stuff. Like if he doesn't really, he doesn't want to like embarrass anybody right. and he can't like, he can literally embarrass whoever he wants out there. He's like that good. As a defenseman playing in the National League, though, are there games where you go into it knowing I'm facing some super high-end talent and I need to have a game plan or else I might get embarrassed out there? Yeah, you definitely you definitely got to know who's on the ice. Um, well, for me, I mean, I'm a perennial third-line or third-pairing defenseman, so, like, I'm usually matching up against, you know, third, fourth-line guys who are playing a similar – somewhat of a similar style game um, that I have. But, you know, when you get stuck out against those top – you know, top two lines or top line, especially, you know, some of those dynamic players, you like, yeah, you really got to kind of be extra sharp because you know, they're not coming in to be physical. 
they're coming in to dangle you and make you look ridiculous. Right. How about so, the big yeah. rig though? I think people don't understand how good a hands Pat Maroon has for a guy his size. Shifty 250? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I was so happy when they won the cup. Um, just well, because there's all the Saskatchewan boys on there too. Yeah. Um, Bozak, Schenner, Schwartz, uh, and then Big Rig. I was so happy to see him win the cup. I mean, yeah, and his hands are – well, he grew up playing ball hockey. He was a roller hockey guy. Like him and, him and Pat Canone used to play together. They may, yeah. still, they may still. They played derby all the time. That's what they called it. Yeah. So, yeah, his hands are unbelievable. Like for a big man like that to have such silky mitts is it's pretty rare. Very, very rare, actually. Give me the prototypical Sasky guy. I hear that term all the time. Kid from Sask, you know, and you just mentioned <laughs> it. I'm happy for all the Sask. What's the definition of that? What defines a person from from Saskatchewan? Um, you know, regardless of, of size or it used to be like, oh, they're a farm kid. They're a big farm kid. Like they're a big, strong kid. I mean, I just, I just, I feel there's so many guys from Saskatchewan are, oh, hell, I'm going to say almost all of them are, you know, character gritty guys. Um, you know, look like a guy like Schwartz, even Schenner, like they're gritty guys, you know, they're, they're skill guys, but they still have a lot of grit and character. And usually, you know, they're usually some of the best guys in the locker room. Yeah. I've always found and I'm not trying to toot my own horn here, but like a lot of guys that I played from Saskatchewan, like they're just awesome small town kids who are playing hockey and like to have fun and don't take things too seriously. I mean, honestly, if I built a team, I'd take a bunch of college kids and a bunch of Western Canadian guys. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? I <laughs> like, yeah. it's, I'd probably yeah. have to sprinkle in a dash of the Euro flair and, and skill level. And yeah, yeah. It, it maybe maybe a French guy or two just for for – balance you know but right. those are really yeah, the guys yeah. i find myself though kind of gravitating towards because the college guys obviously intellectually we have things we can talk about sometimes but you're right man like the western Saskatchewan, alberta like just manitoba salt of the earth dudes it seems like yeah i mean uh, i'm pretty pretty proud to come from here and you know i know i know guys that i've played with growing up and guys that i've played with you know the american league and the nhl are just those western canadian guys you know they're they're definitely a different breed where do you spend your summers now? Because you are in Saskatchewan, but where, yeah, yeah. where exactly are you in the province? Um, I'm like east of Saskatoon. So my wife and I have an acreage out here. And uh, yeah, we're in the middle of nowhere. It's great. I can walk out naked outside my front door and take a leak in the morning and no one sees me. What a feeling. That's it is great. nice. Me, me and yeah. the dogs go outside. Everyone takes their morning pee and you know, I might be naked, <laughs> I might not. It doesn't matter. It's great. Well, you've you've been branching out over the last couple of years. We talked about it earlier, how you have interest in food and hunting. Tell me a little bit about what's going on from the media side of things for you. Yeah, the uh, well, it all. I got the well, obviously my Instagram account. I I do a lot of cooking and hunting and stuff on that, or you know, portraying it on that. Um, but then the TV show came, kind of fell into my lap. I knew the owner of the TV network when I was playing at Edmonton. I hunted with him all the time, and he. He's like, do you just want your own cooking hunting show? I was like, yeah, that sounds great. So I'm going to season two in it, and I've done almost all my filming for season two. And honestly, it's been great. It's been – it's different because going out and hunting with the cameraman is a whole different thing than just going out hunting by yourself. I, I can't tell how many times you have to yell at a cameraman because he's like fucked up a hunt or something. He's like he's messed something up, and you're like, just get out of the damn way and get the shot. Like, how hard is this? It's actually really hard, but um, – it's yeah, it's been great. The uh, so that's been a transition. Um, I'm loving the fact that I'm meeting all these new people and doing all these new things and, and going new places. Um, and it's forcing me to like 
branch out and expand my like my recipes and my comfort levels because I can't you can't keep doing the same stuff over and over again. So I'm 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 really enjoying the fact that I'm my culinary base, whatever you want to call it, is expanding. You know, every year. So yeah, I'm I'm really enjoying it. What's the name of the show and what networks is it on? So it's called Grilling with Griba. Um, it's on Wild TV up in Canada, and also it's gonna be on. It's on the Pursuit Channel down in the U.S. there too. So all you guys south of the border can uh, can tune into that too. Look at the distribution on you. That's great. What's been the I most know. What's been the most challenging hunt for you? You know, or maybe just what species really is it has been the hardest for you? Hardest one is I went up to the Yukon uh, for caribou, and we did about it was all it was a horse it was all on horse. And I think we did about 150 miles on horseback in seven days wow. through the mountains. Like it was wild. It was so cool. How'd your was, ass uh, feel after that? Yeah, it was it was a little tender. Um, luckily, <laughs> like I grew up on horses, so like it was you know I was I was really comfortable on on horseback. But it was uh, it was definitely something I've never done before. I mean, I ended up like swimming a horse on my horse. Like we had to go across this like this like small lake, and we ended up like swimming our horses. That was cool. Um, all oh, this, so we're going along this, like this shale edge and down to my left, there's like, I don't know, a 2000 foot drop. Like there's nothing, you're dead if you fall. And we're going along this little trail and it's kind of shaley and it's like not very stable at all. And so my guide was like, Hey, he says, make sure you take your outside boot out of your stirrup. I'm like, what do you mean? So like, it's the shale still down to my, the falls down to my left. So I took my left boot out of my stirrup. He's, I was like, why? He's like, well, if that horse goes down, you're going to want to be able to jump the other way and grab onto something so you don't fall down with it and die. <laughs> and like right there, I was like, okay, hey, this is getting real. Like this yeah. is pretty, yeah. So that was, that was cool. That was an awesome, awesome hunt. What's the art of taking a whole animal and processing it? Cause it's something I've seen you do and you did it with a bear recently where you're using the entire animal. So what's the art yeah. to that? Um, it is difficult. It's, it's taking your time and, you know, learning from people who are willing to teach you and, or doing research online because it's, it's not that hard, but you got to kind of know what you're doing and you got to have some patience to do it. Cause it's easy to just kind of go through and just cut all the different pieces off and make it into sausage, but to actually, you know, know the different cuts and, you know, process them properly. It, it definitely takes some time and, and some knowledge, but it's really, really rewarding when you can break down a full animal and use an animal like I'm using ribs off of my bear. I've done bear shank and bear sausage and bear steaks like, and bear fat. I rented out all that bear fat. I remember seeing that. Yeah. Do you find that the different cuts, regardless of the animal, are kind of interchangeable in how you have to prepare them? Like if you're doing bear ribs, can you do them similar to how you would do a beef rib or even pork ribs, even though they're much smaller? Um. No. Well. No. It depends um, on the animal. So like pork ribs are going to have a lot more fat on them, as you know. Well, these bear right. ribs, you the bear fat, as unless it's rendered down, it doesn't taste as good. It gets kind of oily and greasy. So you cut off as much of the fat off the bear as you possibly can. So they're going to cook differently because there's less fat, basically. Same thing with, you know, if you're going to do venison ribs, there's like going to be no fat on them. So you can't cook them a long time like you'd cook, you know, St. Louis style ribs. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a whole different thing. So you have to basically manage how much fat is in in the meat that you're cooking will kind of determine how you cook it. 
it's amazing how you pick up all this knowledge just by going through and working with different people because there's so much out there. And I think that's something about cooking that I like is that it's a never ending process. Like you can always be better with it. Do you find that as well, that it's, it's always this kind of quest to do a better job? Yeah. I mean, you can never stop learning. There's right. always new stuff. There's always new techniques. There's always new recipes. There's always new things to cook. Like it's, it's basically you have to decide how far you want to go down the rabbit hole. You know, that's, that's basically, if you want to just scratch the surface, yeah, you can just do that. But like me, I'm like going head first down the rabbit hole right now. And I don't know, I'm probably not going to see light for a long time. <laughs> well, I got to ask you though, what the art is to being able to prepare a dinner while having a baby and a baby Bjorn in front of you. Cause I've seen you do it on your Instagram page and, and you, you do have a child now you are a father. So yeah, give me the, give me the process and how you decided that, Hey man, I'm going to do this with the kid on the fr- on the front of me. I just had the kid on me anyway, in that baby Bjorn little sleep sack thing. And I was like, well, and my wife's like, well, who's cooking supper? I'm like, oh, I'll cook. I mean, she's sleeping, so I guess I can cook. <laughs> so, yeah, I think we did a fish that night or something, and just, yeah, she slept through the whole thing, and that was great. Uh, made for good television, or at least a good Instagram yeah. Yeah, story exactly. or two, yeah, I know. right? I know. Well, babe, baby Bjorn, like, reached out to me, like, oh, this is so cool. Could we, like, post it? I'm like, you know, you do whatever you want. I don't care. No kidding. So, well, you also, uh, you talk about baby Bjorn, but you've also had several companies reach out to you. I mean, I know you have somewhat of an affiliation with Traeger and, and, you know, give mm-hmm. me a little bit of insight to uh, what you do with their grills, what they're good for and how you guys work together. Yeah, no, they, um, they basically send me grills for, for my cooking and um, for my shows. They, uh, I really love, I love the pellet grill. I think it's awesome. It's, there's so many different ways. There's so many different things you can cook on it. And it's such a set it. I don't want to say set it and forget it. Cause that's what, you know, people kind of market it that way, but it's, it's really, it's tough to screw things up on a pellet grill. Realistically, like if you screwed up something, it's because you're probably a moron. Basically, <laughs> it's, it's, it's how, is how I put it. Um, with that being said, I got into charcoal this year and I finally got into charcoal. I don't know what took me so long. And that for me is like my next, I just, I'm just kind of like brushing the surface with it right now. And that's my kind of my next skill I want to master because it's it's definitely, as you know, it's a definitely a different flavor. It's a different flavor and it's a different, uh, well, time commitment first. You have to always monitor yeah. the fire. Um, yeah. But it's also, there's so many variables in what you can do with it too. Because you can, you can you can vary the the heat of the fire first off, but you can also vary the different woods that you use. And, and yeah. I mean, I don't even use briquettes anymore. I just use straight lump charcoal. Yeah, and me I've, too. I've got a PK grill that I love for it that's so versatile. Yeah, you're saying that. Yeah, PK is – they've been great. Um, you can smoke on it, grill on it, do whatever you need. It's a really cool old-school-looking capsule, you know, too. Yeah, so yeah, My yeah, neighbors yeah. all see it and think it's pretty cool-looking. And I do yeah. want to ask you, though, a little bit about conservation efforts because mm-hmm. I know that that's kind of tied in with the hunting community. Where do you see that progressing to and what are your thoughts on – you know, people always talk about how – conservation can be funded by hunters. So maybe just elaborate on that a little. Yeah. Well, it's such a taboo topic right now. Um, you know, hunting and, and, and as hunters and, you know, I grew up as a hunter, like how much money, there's so much money that we put in towards conservation because we want the animals to thrive is for all you non hunters out there and who don't get it. Like this might be kind of a bizarre topic or a, a you know, it's going to be tough to wrap your head around this, but like, I love animals. I like absolutely love them. I love watching animals. I love 
being around animals. I like hunting animals. I like eating animals. I love everything about animals. I want there to be a lot of animals around. So that's why we put so much money into conservation. Like there's never been healthier deer herds, uh, the amounts of waterfowl, elk, everything you name, you can basically name, you know, 20 different species that are, are thriving since, you know, the 1950s because of the amount of money that has gone into conservation because we're managing populations. That's a big thing. Everyone's like, Oh, you know, stop hunting. Well, what's going to happen to all the animals? They're probably just going to eat themselves out of, you know, food. There's going to be disease and they're all, most of them are going to die anyway, and they're going to die of disease. So, because we can't, they can't monitor, they can't manage themselves naturally anymore. At one point, yes, they could, you know, wolves, coyotes, predators, you know, cougars, everything. They could manage their populations. Well, we keep taking away their land, right? With, you know, new developments, cities, everything, infrastructures, you name it. We're taking away their habitat. So that's why hunters and outdoorsmen and anglers and whatnot have to come in and basically come in and monitor their levels and harvest enough game so that the uh, herds are healthy. And so then, and so then the herds can thrive. So there's always going to be more animals. There's going to be more animals for the next generation. It's, uh, it's, yeah, it's tough to wrap your head around if you're not a hunter or an outdoorsman um, to hear that, like, I love animals, but we need to kill them so they can survive. Uh, well, you also have a huge level of respect for the animal, and you can see that with what you do. You know, you're not just trophy hunting. I mean, you're taking the whole animal, processing it, and you're using every part, which I think is amazing. And that's really the way it should be. You know, when you think about how we buy stuff at the grocery store, you just go out and buy chicken breasts. You know, right. instead of buying a whole animal, and I've started to, to try to buy things in bulk, so I actually have to break it down and use more of it. And even for a non-hunter, I at least feel a little bit better about myself by doing that. And I find ways to actually use it, though. I'll break a whole chicken down, and I'll use carcass, and I'll make stock out of it, you know? And right. it gives Ooh. me a bit of insight into what, what you're doing with all your stuff. Yeah, because there's, there's such a disconnect um, right now with where – food comes from like a lot of you know there's so many people you just mentioned just go to the grocery store and you know my piece of steak is you know in a sealed container and i'm going to take it home and throw it on the grill and i'm going to eat it well you know people know that something had to die but do you really know that like that animal had to a cow had to die for that steak or chicken or, or whatever like it's you, you gain such more respect for the animals and the food that you're eating when you know or, or see like okay this life has been taken I took that animal's life and I don't take that lightly. Like that's for me, that's the worst part of hunting is actually taking a life. I don't enjoy that. It's miserable. Like to see an animal die, it's, it's, it sucks every time. But at the end of the day, it's, well, I'm going to use all the food or I'm going to use all the meat. I'm going to process it and respect that animal because it's, you know, part of the conservation process. And you're not wasting anything, which is really admirable. Right. Well, whenever hockey winds down, do you see yourself having a job in, TV, cooking, hunting. Does that seem like the next natural progression for you? Um, I will, yes. I will stay in the hunting industry, in the TV side for sure. My goal is to, once, I, is once I'm done, is to transition into the hunting industry, kind of, yeah, transition into the hunting industry. So, like, right now, I'm partnered up with a waterfowl outfit up here in Saskatchewan. So, we bring up American clients, and they come hunt some of the best waterfowl in the world up in Saskatchewan. It's called Apex Waterfowling. Um, you know, I, I want to dabble in more things like that, more outfits. Um, 
so yeah, that's kind of where I want to be because I love the outdoors. I love hunting and you know, if I can make money at it, well, then that makes sense to me. Awesome, man. Well, you think about all the things that we've experienced that have been kind of in parallel with food and hockey and all the stories and we could go on and on with Iron League stuff for days, but <laughs> I know. <laughs> I mean, you've had a you've had a great career today. I hope it keeps going and and you get another chance to go full-time in the NHL again. But thanks so much for joining me today. I think that people are going to really enjoy your insight into not just the hockey world, but the food side and the hunting side as well. So thanks again. Awesome. Thanks, Mike. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to Six Degrees with Mike McKenna. Please make sure that you like, comment, leave a rating, subscribe, whether it's iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, anywhere that you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.